Um, yeah, so this talk comes from uh, a retreat that I did for a number of years with Ratnavandana that was on Hakuin Song Meditation, which is a very famous Dharma text. And I was going to give a talk on that as well in the autumn, but I wasn't well, so we had to cancel both of them. And I only got given one slot this time around. So, mm. <laughs> so I've got another talk on this very wonderful Dharma text I'd like to give at some point by Hakuin. So I used to give this talk on these retreats, so it's, um, I feel I've really got to know Hakuin over a number of years. Um, so the talk is really about his life and his teachings. Very remarkable guy, quite, quite a character, as you'll find out from his life story. But I thought I'd just say beforehand a bit about Zen. So Hakuin is a Zen teacher. And probably we're all quite familiar with the word Zen, but it's used in all kinds of ways, isn't it, um, in the modern world? You might see a shop that says, you know, Zen Kitchen or something. <laughs> <laughs> that is just a, it's just a kind of word for a certain aesthetic, I think, very simple, very clear aesthetic. But that isn't really what Zen means. So Zen is a school of Buddhism that is in Japan. And um, it's... It's a Japanese corruption of a Chinese word, which is a corruption of an Indian word. And the Indian word is dhyana, which is the word for meditation. Okay? Not just trying to concentrate, which is what probably most of us do in our meditation, but it's sort of true meditation, which is when one's in a state of, of absorption. So you're very, very sort of integrated and still and calm and able to penetrate into reality. So that's dhyana. When uh, Buddhism went to China... That particular school, the school of meditation, became Chan. So in Chinese, you get Chan Buddhism. And then when it went to Japan, it became Zen Buddhism. So it's the school of meditation, Zen Buddhism. So I think that's quite useful to know, isn't it? That it doesn't just mean sort of nicely raked gravel gardens <laughs> and little trees and poetry and calligraphy. All those things are Zen, but they're all expressions of the this, of this school, which is about meditation. And it's interesting the way this school started. It's, it's quite wonderful, actually. At the time of the Buddha, he um, was giving a sermon at one point, and he held up a flower. So I'm just going to tell you this little story, because it's lovely. He was giving a discourse. The master simply held up, amidst the silence of the assembly, a golden flower. And only Mahakashapa, one of the oldest disciples, famed for his austerity understood the meaning of the Buddha's action and smiled. That's all the Buddha's done, golden flower. The Buddha then said, I am the owner of the eye of the wonderful Dharma, which is nirvana, the mind, the mystery of reality and non-reality, and the gate of the transcendental truth. I now hand it over to Mahakashapa. And that was the first transmission of what has become the Zen school. Isn't that wonderful? The, you know, he just holds up this flower and this guy gets it. He gets the whole truth through this gesture of holding up a flower. And the Buddha says, I am the owner of the wonderful Dharma and I now hand it over to Mahakashapa. And then there's all these that gets handed on from teacher to disciple. And the 28th Indian... Um, Patriarch, they're called the patriarchs, so it's not so good for modern feminism, but it just means the elder, the leader, okay? So let's take that in a general term. The 28th Indian patriarch was a guy called Bodhidharma, 
very, very famous character. And he took it to China. So he's the first person that took Buddhism to China. And he was a really um, fierce practitioner. I think there's a story that he sat staring at a wall for 10 years, something like that. You know, very, very intense character. The sixth Chinese patriarch was Huinan, again, very famous um, individual in Buddhism. And Huinan passed it on to 43. He was such a gifted teacher, he passed it on to 43 different people. And that's the lineage that has gone to Japan. And there's two main uh, Zen schools in Japan, Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen. Hakuin, who we're talking about tonight, is, was the great reformer of Rin, Rinzai Zen. So he lived uh, about the 18th century, and he reformed what was quite a sort of moribund school of Rinzai Zen. And Dogen, who I'm talking about next week, he was the founder of Soto Zen. Okay? So it goes right back to the Buddha, right back to this gesture of holding up a flower. Very mysterious. And Zen is quite mysterious. You know, there's all these crazy stories about Zen Buddhists and Zen masters. Very, very strict. Very, very uncompromising. And it all goes back to that gesture. So, I'm going to tell you about Hakuin. Full name, Zen Master Hakuin Ikaku. He was born in 1686 and he died in 1769. So he lived for 84 years, which is quite a long time for people at that time. And he's the most influential Zen monk of the past 500 years. So he's recognized as being a great, great master. And he's still um, revered by a lot of people. And he revived Zen from the state of deep stagnation and decline at that time in Japan in uh, 1686. That's 17th century, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. His first spiritual name, Ikaku, means wise crane. Isn't that beautiful? Wise crane. And he got this at his first ordination. I think it might be my glasses, actually. Did it fit in that bag somewhere? <coughs> and he later adopted the name Hakuin Glasses. Um, and his, the, the name Hakuin means concealed in white. Isn't that fantastic? Concealed. So he went from being a wise crane to being concealed in white. This can be taken as being lost in the pure, clean whiteness of Buddha nature, lost in the whiteness of reality. And it also refers to the fact that he lived beneath Mount Fuji, the peak of Mount Fuji. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all. I'm just getting to that age, which is awkward when you... Anyway, bear with me. I bet you Hakuin didn't have to wear glasses. Anyway. So his mother, he... he he came from a religious family. His mother was a devout Nichiren Buddhist. So Nichiren is another form of uh, another school of Buddhism. And he was especially close to her. He described her as a simple, good-natured woman who took pleasure in spontaneous acts of kindness and compassion. Yeah, so he was brought up in this loving family with this spontaneously kind mother. And she took him to sermons at the local temple, local Nichiren temples. And it was clear there that her deeply religious nature had a profound effect on this little boy, this sensitive little boy. He was noted for his memory. At four, he could recite by heart over 300 of the village songs when he was four. And he could also recite a section of the White Lotus Sutra that he heard at a service. So the White Lotus Sutra is a very famous Buddhist text. He was very physically frail but intellectually gifted. That comes out in his life as well. Very, very fantastic mind and 
of this body that was not very strong, which was quite difficult for him later on. When he was 11, he heard a sermon from a famous Nichiren priest on the punishment that befell sinners when they fall into one of the eight hot hells. So I think it probably it was a little bit like fire and brimstone, sort of fundamentalist preachers today. This little boy heard the story of hells and got absolutely terrified and thought, thought it was all going to happen to him. Um, and so from that time on, he was tormented by a fear of having to face such a hell himself. So he was really, you know, very distressed by this. Um, so that's what drove him to start, start wanting to pursue a spiritual practice, this fear of hell. He wanted to avoid that, so he thought, I'll be um, a monk, I'll practice the Dharma. Uh, and he was very impressed by tales of Buddhist priests where they underwent really harrowing ordeals that would be inconceivable to mere mortals. And there's a lot of that in the Zen tradition. There's a lot of stories of monks doing, well, things like sitting facing a wall for 10 years. That's pretty standard sort of Zen behavior, or the things that people look up to. So then what he did, maybe he was only about 11, he embarked on a series of exercises, rising at dawn, reciting sutras, dousing himself with buckets of cold water, performing prostrations, and praying to the gods for their help. So he was really going for it. And he pursued this for several years without noticeable results. I mean, the poor little boy, you know, just terrified of hell, doing all these things, you know, throwing cold water over himself, doing, you know, probably dozens of prostrations and not getting anywhere. He looked at the waves on the beach and the clouds in the sky and was terrified of the impermanence they expressed. Now, Papa Vajra has given, who's, a, who's a, an order member in our order, he's given a very, very good talk on Hakuin. It's on video, actually, downstairs, and I'd recommend you get it. Um, and he said in the talk that Hakuin was in a real state about the world. He was in a real state. He longed to be a monk. His terror and his questions about life moved him to seek the truth. So when he was 14, at long last, his parents said he would get ordained, and he joined the Rinzai branch of Zen at Shoinji, which was his local temple, Shoinji. Um, and Rinzai is the school of Buddhism, school of Zen Buddhism, and it fo- focuses on koan practice. I'll say more about that later. But koan is where you've, you, you continually reflect on insoluble riddles. So that's the sort of uh, Buddhism he got involved in. So he got ordained when he was 14, and his spiritual quest continued unabated for the rest of his life until he was 84 though he had periods of great doubt, as we'll discover. At 17, he wandered from one temple to another, one famous master to another, always searching. So he would go for a bit, take the teachings, and then move on. This is a lovely story. About this time, he reads about a Chinese master, Yan Tao, Chinese Chan master. Yan Tao had a backbone of iron, who had said, the intent of my teaching is like a poison-smeared drum. One beat, and all who hear it near and far perish. Yeah, that's perish in the sense of your your sort of self-centeredness perishing, which is like spiritual death. And then, when he was alive, Yan Tao, armies looted the central realm of China, and they uh, looted the monasteries, and were killing monks and various people. So all of Yan Tao's monks fled, and only the master remained. And he remained sitting in meditation, absorbed in the great matter. So there he is sitting there, you know, cross-legged, with all these brigands and uh, soldiers 
storming the monastery. So the, the uh, warriors were pushing and shoving and cutting and piercing him through. And he shouted the great, Cut! And died. Amazing, isn't it? This guy practices so strong, he's just sitting there in meditation, not running away, and gets killed. And he does this great sh- enlightenment shout. And his death cry was heard for ten miles around Yen Tao. So that's actually supposed to be a very inspiring story, but it held no romance for Hakuin when he heard it. Um, he took it to be a cry, for tor- a cry of torment, the great shout of enlightenment. He thought, God, this guy, you know. He cried out so much because he was so weak and everyone heard him. And then, then he thought, well, if such a great priest could not even protect himself from bandits, what hope was there for an ordinary monk like him to avoid the fires of hell? So that when he read the story, he got very, very disillusioned and he um, had a lot of doubt. So when he read this, he dashed all his hopes and aspirations and the, the Buddhist priesthood lost all interest for him. Poor guy. I mean, just think he's so kind of intense and um, searching. So he came to regard everything about Zen and all it represented with intense dislike. The mere sight of a sutra or a Buddhist image was now enough to turn his stomach. This, there's a very good autobiography of this book, Wild Ivy, and some quotes. Some of the things I say are quotes from that book. So that's a quote from the book. The mere sight of a sutra or a Buddhist image was now enough to turn his stomach. Surely there is nothing more worthless than a Buddhist monk, he said at that time. And I think it's quite interesting. The the value of um, hearing about great teachers from the past is how can we learn from their lives? And many of us have our own version of that doubt, I think. You know, you've been meditating for a while and you think, well, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not getting more, any more concentrated or calm. And we can think we need to give up. And so Hackle went through all those same kind of doubts and frustrations that we go through. So he could have returned home at this point, but he rejected this as too humiliating to even contemplate. So then, following a period of intense soul-searching, he decided that inasmuch as he was powerless to influence his destiny in the next life, he might as well enjoy the present one while he could. So he just thought, well, I might as well just enjoy life then, if I'm not going to be able to prevent myself going into hell. So he he was interested in scholarly pursuits, so he decided to study literature, painting, and calligraphy. These things were very highly revered in Japan at that time. So he thought that not only would it be an interesting diversion, but he might be able to earn his living as an artist or a writer. So he's only about eight, 17, 18 by this point. So he's been a monk, he's lost his faith, and he's decided to give it all up and get a job as a writer or an artist. So at 18, he studies calligraphy and poetry with Master Bao, or Bo. This master was so tough and the temple was so poor that all the students left except Hakuin. So he was very good at calligraphy, but then Hakuin realised that even if he became excellent, it wouldn't be worth a thing when facing death and the king of hell. So he was back to his problem again. Well, I might be good at this, but so what? And again, I think many of us go through that, don't we? We, we sort of get a job or a career, or we think something's going to be an interesting um, diversion or make us happy, and then we're left with the same existential questions and doubts. 
And around this time, his mother died as well. And remember, he was very close to his mother, so he was inconsolable, 18 years old, inconsolable. So he decided to return to his Zen pilgrimage. <laughs> Poor guy. So he was in a real state in the crisis, not for the first time, as we realise. And this is a little bit from his autobiography. I had reached a total impasse, the fear still dominating my thoughts, no idea where to turn for help. Streams of tears ran unconsciously down my cheeks. My gaze happened to go up to the veranda of the guest hall, where hundreds of books had been stacked on top of desks following the annual airing of the temple library. I lit an offering of incense before the books, performed a score or so of prostrations, and prayed earnestly to the gods and Buddhas for their help, telling them how, four or five years after shaving my head, I was still at sixes and sevens, had no idea what to do with my life, which of the paths, Buddhism, Confucianism, or Taoism, I should follow. I closed my eyes and slowly approached a pile of books on one of the desks. With my thumb and forefinger, I reached out and fished blindly among the stacks until I had fixed on a single volume. I pulled it out and raised it high above my head in veneration two or three times. Then I opened it. He had chosen a work called Spurring Students Through the Zen Barriers, a collection of anecdotes and quotations relating to Zen study culled from a wide variety of texts. He opened the pages randomly to a passage describing the life and practice of the celebrated 10th century Chinese priest Zhu Ning. While engaging in Zazen, Zazen is um, Zen meditation, through the freezing nights of northern India, Zhu Ming had jabbed himself in the, th in the thigh with, with a needle-sharp awl whenever he sensed the sleep demon approaching. To Hakuin, Zhu Ming's serendipitous intervention at this juncture could have only one meaning. A person who commits himself to attaining religious awakening must push forward with unwavering determination whatever difficulties he encounters until the goal is reached. Yeah, imagine that, you sort of, you're going to sleep so you stab yourself in the thigh, keep you awake. It's quite mad. So that got him back on the path. He thought, yes, I've got to just have that kind of determination and keep pushing forward, even with these doubts. So then he continued on his pilgrimage to various teachers that lasted several years and took him throughout central Japan. So that was the way, quite a common life at that time. You just wander from temple to temple, gathering the teachings and uh, doing the practice. And he was very disappointed in a lot of what he found. Perhaps not surprisingly, we begin to get a sense of the sort of character he was. So at that time, contemporary Zen schools promoted, on the whole, a quietist and passive practice. What he's called variously silent illumination, lifeless sitting, do as you please, do nothing Zen, and unborn Zen. Yeah. So I think the main contemporary schools are popular schools. The mistake they were making is um, it, it was the idea that we've got Buddha nature. Some of the teachings say that we've all got Buddha nature. Yeah? We're born with Buddha nature and it's there already. And if you um, interpret that teaching in a very sort of limited way, they think, well, I don't have to do anything. I've got Buddha nature, so I don't have to do anything. So that was what he was encountering in the popular schools of that time. And of course, he was disgusted by this. He couldn't believe that people could be so uh, passive. Um, so some of the quotes that he came across is, you don't change, 
You stay in the unborn Buddha mind and you don't change it into anything else. All things are perfectly taken care of if you just remain in the unborn Buddha mind you received at birth from your parents. Do not transform your Buddha mind into illusory thoughts. So these quotes are probably true, but they can be misunderstood and people just sit there. They become a priest because that was a kind of um, recognised path for, for young men at that time. You become a priest and you just sort of sit around and don't do anything. That's what he was encountering and he was appalled by this. Um, so he really goes on about this in his teachings. You know, he's very, very critical. A whole chapter of his spiritual biography, this book, is devoted to reflections on do nothing Zen. That he felt was really undermining the teachings. Oh, I forgot to put my timer on. You're right. It's just 21 minutes still. Thank you. You're well trained. Exactly. It's fantastic. What am I going to do with this? Excuse me. I'm going to put this down in my trousers at the back. <laughs> yeah. so I'll read you some of the quotes because it's, it's very very you get a sense of his character many had turned to the dry and lifeless methods of the unborn Zen that had taken such a hold on people's minds in recent times aside from their morning and midday meals on which they did an admirable job both old monks and young monks alike spent their days seated like lumps in long lifeless ranks nodding away like oarsmen. At night, they waited with pricked ears, listening for the bell to announce the end of the sitting period. Then they lined up their pillows and laid themselves down to sleep. Another, another quote. These people think it is a matter of simply being Buddhist the way they are right now, covered bowls of plain, unvarnished wood. That's a, a quote. They think that the mind-free state detached from all thought is the complete and ultimate attainment. So sort of not, not thinking being a path in itself. True to their words, they do not do a single thing. They engage in no act of religious practice. They don't develop a shred of wisdom. They just waste their lives dozing idly away like comatose badges. Useless to their contemporaries while they live, completely forgotten when they die. Maintaining come hell or high water, we are just Buddhas as we are, plain unvarnished bowls. They proceed to consume heaping piles of rice day after day. Then they, dis then they disburden themselves of steaming loads of horse flop. <laughs> Great copious pillows of the stuff. That is the sum, sum total of their achievements. They can't help a single person to the other shore of emancipation. I like this. I, I love the way this guy is just so outspoken. Because he really, he, he really believes in the truth. And uh, he feels really distressed that this is such kind of corruption of the teachings. And he, calls he called the lazy monks clothes hangers and rice bags. <laughs> it's very interesting, this, because, um, you know, Sangharach, the founder of our order, he can be very outspoken and very critical of, um, I suppose, contemporary um, ideologies that one can just sort of slip into as part of being just a member of society, I suppose, where you don't really think about th think things through, like thinking maybe you can be a Christian and a Buddhist, which some people do think. Now, Christians believe in God and Buddhists don't, but it's quite easy to get into a position where you think, well, it's all kind of the same, really. Well, Hakuin, I'm quite sure, wouldn't have, wouldn't have stood for that. 
things like political correctness when it goes mad. He wouldn't have stood for that. So I, can, I, I take quite a lot of inspiration from Hacker when he had the courage to really sort of go against the grain and speak out because of what he believed in. If you come to hear Sangar actually when he does a talk in April, you might get a sense of that sort of very uncompromising. He, he doesn't really care whether people likes him. What he cares about is that the truth, that the teachings aren't um, sort of watered down to a point where they're lost just because they're, if they're watered down, then, then we find them comfortable. Yeah? So Hakuin didn't care whether he made people feel very uncomfortable. So in contrast to these prevailing views, Hakuin believed firmly that one had to make an unwavering effort in the spiritual life. He was a great believer in effort, the path of effort. Can I sit down now, please? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I've got my timer on now. So this was a real distinguishing aspect of his legacy, this unwavering, determined effort. Um, he believed in the power, even the virtue of struggle, which is interesting, that struggle can be something that's very, very fruitful for one's spiritual life. And that seeking a happiness and quietness in, as an end in itself is missing the point. So later he wrote that the degenerate practices of the contemporary Zen sapped people of the, of the very thing that is absolutely essential to the spiritual quest, and that very thing is a great burning tenacity of purpose. I like that. A great burning tenacity of purpose. I mean, how many of us, when we get up in the morning and want to you know, con consider meditating, do so with a great burning tenacity of purpose? I don't, but I, I wish I did more, you know. And he says that unless students press forward with a spirit of fierce and dauntless inquiry, they will never break free of Myra's net of delusion. It will cling to their bones, stick to their hides until the last breath they draw. And he quoted an ancient master who had said, the practice of Zen requires three essentials, a great root of, root of faith, a feeling of great doubt, and a great burning aspiration. And that you have to have all three, otherwise it's a three-legged cord with, with one leg broken off. So you need to have all those three things, faith, doubt, and aspiration. And the most important is the great burning aspiration. So that's interesting. He said, you, may have, you, might, possess an, you might possess an abundance of deep-rooted faith and a great doubt as well, but if the burning aspiration is not present, the great and marvellous power for healing others will not develop and you will be incapable of curing the besetting illness of mankind and liberating sentient beings. Yeah. So burning aspiration. Essentially you need to have doubt, isn't it? In a way it's the doubt, that, as we've already seen, it's the doubt that's driven him forward in his life when he's had these great periods of questioning and then recommitted himself to his path. So he's only 21 still. All this has ha happened before he's 21. And this is when he begins koan practice which is this um, living with a riddle. So the first thing he does is Joshu's Mu. So the Mu koan is probably the most widely known koan in Zen practice. And Mu is the negative symbol in Chinese. Um, so Mu means no thing. It doesn't mean nothing, it means no thing. So you just contemplate no thing, no thing no thing in your, in your waking hours in your sleeping hours so you're trying to go forth from fixing life into things yeah so you're saying moo 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 I think that's how they do it you know it's just all your meditation is contemplating the koan 
what does no thing really mean at the most deepest level? And what you do in current practice, you then go and have, I think it's called Dokushan with your master. So you go to your master and he questions you about your koan and you say something and generally speaking you get whacked about the head and get sent back into the shrine hall because your, your answer will be inadequate. So that's the, that's the way current practice works. You'll be tested by the master. It's very, very fierce and strict and humiliated. You know, if you think, well, I really, I've really got it now, and you go in there and you try and um, impress the master, he will not be impressed. I'll, I'll give you some examples of that in a minute. Um, so the way... This no, the way no thing or mu originated is Joshu, who was this great master, the question he was asked, has a dog got Buddha nature? And he said, mu, no thing. And that was his enlightenment verse. Has a dog got Buddha nature? Mu. So you probably won't understand that, but that's because you're not enlightened, possibly. <laughs> You can never understand these things intellectually. I love this, because it just completely does your head in. It does your kind of knowing, understanding, grasping mind in, and something, something else has to come through, some sort of deeper wisdom has to come through. So anyway, he was given Mu, so he works at this constantly day and night, of course, um, and it burns through him on and on and on. Uh, he says, if you take one koan and investigate it unceasingly, your mind will die and your will will be destroyed. It is, it is as though a vast empty abyss lay before you, or abyss lay before you. With no place to set your hands and feet, you face death. Suddenly you are one with your koan and both body and mind are cast off. And you fall, un, you fall into the abyss and suddenly you return to life and there is great joy. This is rebirth into the pure land. This is seeing into your own true nature. You must push forward relentlessly. Never doubt that without seeing into your own nature, you cannot be a Buddha. There is no pure land. Yeah? So you have to push endlessly into the koan. Later on, he, reduced, he introduced into the Rinzai tradition the very fa famous koan. If someone claps his hands, one hears a sound at once. Listen now to the sound of a single hand. That's, I mean, that is fantastic, isn't it? If someone claps his hand, one hears a sound at once. Listen now to the sound of a single hand. So this is very often paraphrased as, what is the sound of one hand clapping? You've probably heard of that, or maybe you have. So you just reflect on that. What is the sound of one hand clapping? And there's no way you can answer that with your logical mind, is there? But you have to go into the abyss and be reborn and be sort of joined with the answer. Other koans are things like, without thinking of good, without thinking of evil, now what is your original face? Without thinking of good, without thinking of evil, now what is your original face? And, of course, has a dog got Buddha nature? That's a very common one. Has a dog got Buddha nature? Okay. So, is your homework. <laughs> So, of course, in the FWO, we don't do koan practice. But I think we can still learn from koan practice. Um, we've probably all got questions in our lives, sort of insoluble questions, and we should cherish those. I think that's the thing we can learn from this. I don't mean psychological problems. We don't need to cherish those. But existential problems, 
I mean, I've got one with my back, which is very interesting, but I, I, I reflect on it as a koan, which is how do I accept the unacceptable? Yeah, there's something about my situation that is utterly unacceptable, and yet I have to accept it. So I, like, I really chew that <coughs> over, you know, how do I accept the unacceptable? Um, I also um, have reflected very deeply on why is compassion the expression of wisdom? That's a kind of problem, in a way, spiritual problem, which I didn't get rationally. It didn't seem obvious to me. Well, why? You know, if you're wise, why are you automatically kind? So I reflected on that after my meditation, maybe 10 minutes every day. Why is compassion the expression of wisdom? Because I wanted to make that a kind of automatic link, if you like, in my heart, rather than something I had to sort of track through. Because I could work it out rationally, but I wanted it to be something that was natural, sort of natural um, knowing. And I think, you know, it's become more so through that kind of practice. Um, and Sangharachita, he's got, in one of his lectures, I think on the Confession and the um, Sutra of Golden Light series, he talks about the difference between a problem and a difficulty. So a difficulty is something like um, you go outside and there's a flat tyre tonight. Well, that's a difficulty, it's pain. But you just, there will be a way of solving that, either yourself or call out the RAC person. Problems cannot be solved on their own level. And he says problems are great. We should cherish our problems. problems. Problems are something we have to die to. We have to die a little bit to become someone new that can solve the problem. So a problem might be something like um, not being able to speak in public. You think, I can't speak in public. Well, who can't speak in public? Who is this I that can't speak in public? And, you know, you probably can speak in public, but you have to become someone new in order to be able to speak in public. And in the Buddhist, from the point of view of wisdom, we're, we're becoming someone new every single moment. Yeah. Every single moment you're a new being. So you can, you can, a little bit of you can die, a little bit of you can be new every moment. So that's a problem. So rather than thinking, I can't speak in public, that's it. You think, well, this is a problem. Great, I've got a spiritual problem. How can I transform myself so I can become someone that can speak in public? Public, That kind of thing. Um, uh, there's probably lots of other examples I could give of problems, but it might be worth you really thinking after this talk, well, what, what are my spiritual problems? What are the things that I could cherish and die to and become someone new in relation to these areas of my life that feel problematic? Um, and Padma Vajra... He says that he thinks Sangharachita's life has been a whole life of koans. And if you read his autobiography, he talks about Sangharachita 1 and Sangharachita 2. So Sangharachita 1 is a monk, and Sangharachita 2 is a poet, or maybe the other way around. But there are these two sides of himself, and they could not be sort of integrated on their own level. So there had to be a much deeper integration on a different level for him to sort of harmonise those two sides of himself. And again, a lot of us have got lots of con contradictory sides to ourselves that can't be sort of solved on their own level and examples of Bhante's life um, once a Galugpa abbot asked him what is the cause of shunyata what is the cause of emptiness and that for years Bhante reflected on this as a koan what is the cause of shunyata because you can't figure that out on a rational level Padmavadra says in his talk, we all need koans, pressing spiritual problems, big problems. No big problem, no big questions, no gateway to Buddhas. The Dharma must be life and death to us. No koan, no going for refuge. 
that's pretty uncompromising, isn't it? So if you thought that your meditation practice and spiritual life is going to make your life all lovely and problem-free, then I'm afraid you've come to the wrong place. You know, because the more we get to know ourselves, the more these things bubble up as well. But then, if you can really embrace them, they can be the kind of fuel for our practice. So questions can needle at us, and we can burn in the intensity of intractable opposites. I mean, this feels like that to me sometimes when I've got, I feel I'm being sort of pulled apart by two sides of myself. It does feel like I'm burning in some intensity. Hakuin said, the best time to meditate is when you're suffering and that to be in difficult situations gives you lots of energy if you approach it in the right way. Which I have to say is my experience. You know, and this is very like Tibetan mind training. Um, Atisha is a Tibetan master. He says very, very, very much to embrace times of trouble. Those are the times when we can really break through. Okay. Oh, another koan of mine, which is very interesting, is about dependence. So I am dependent on beings. I mean, we're all dependent, actually. I'm particularly dependent because of my disability. So I'm dependent on beings, right? So far, so good. And yet, beings are unreliable. So how do you sort that one out? If people don't let me down, then they'll probably die at some point. Yeah? So... I can react to that by thinking, well, well, I'll be independent then. Beings are unreliable, so I won't need anybody. But I do need people. That's a fantastic koan, isn't it? There's no solution on its own level. How do I really trust beings when actually beings are untrustworthy? And all of us are in this situation. But if you haven't got a disability, you probably think, well, I won't need anyone then. I'll just be independent as a sort of solution. But that's not a solution. Because none of us can be wholly independent because we're very interdependent. So that's a really juicy one to get your heart around. Anyway, I must press on. So when he was 24, Hakuin penetrated Moo. He got Moo. So he'd been doing it for three, four years. Moo, 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 Moo. I think that's how it works. He's just constantly reciting the koan. So this is a quote. As he was sitting there in the pre-dawn hours, the sound of a distant bell reached his ears. As it did, he finally crossed the threshold into Satori or enlightenment. Like the smashing of a layer of ice or shattering of a crystal tower, body and mind dropped away and I shouted, Ka! Yen Tao is alive and well right here. So that's, he understood the shout of this Chinese master. Mu was penetrated and Yen Tao's shout was understood. So intense, this is so funny, this bit. So intense was the experience that he was convinced that no one in the past 300 years had penetrated to such a glorious attainment. He spent, he spent the next few weeks strutting around the temple, puffed up with soaring pride, bursting with arrogance, and swallowing whole everyone he encountered, regarding them contemptuously as so many lumps of dirt. So he had this breakthrough and it rather went to his head. So he went to Master Dokyo Etan at Shojuan to test his realisation, which is what you do, you get your realisation tested by masters. Shoju asked, what about the dog and Buddha nature? There's no, and then Hakuin replied, there's no way for hand or foot to touch it. Very clever answer. There's no way for hand or foot to touch it. The master then reached out and grabs, ha, grabbed Hakuin's nose in his hand and gave it a sharp push. 
How's that for a firm touch? He declared. So he basically punctured Hakuin's pride. He gave his clever answer, there's no way for it to touch. And then the master just reached out and grabbed him and said, well, how's that for a firm touch? If you don't get it, don't worry, because you're not really supposed to, because it's very <laughs> profound. <laughs> so Hakuin could not speak a word and was disheartened and frustrated. So he stayed for eight, a further eight months with um, Dokyo Etan, and he said that was the most important time of his life. Which you can imagine, can't you? He had this breakthrough. He thought he'd attained complete enlightenment. He had his attainment punctured, and he realized it wasn't an irreversible insight. And so he was really ready to knuckle down and practice. And he tested, Shoju tested him with great harshness, pushing him further into his insight and breaking his pride. So um, Haku would describe his insights, and Itan would beat him and say, delusions and pure fantasy... <laughs> or child of the devil in a dark dungeon. Shoji crushed like an eggshell Hakuin's arrogance and believed that he had achieved it all. <laughs> he was in a state of near terror the whole time, trembling in every joint, his flesh constantly puckered up in goosebumps. It's so intense, this stuff, isn't it? Uh, Shoju asked Hakuin why he'd become a monk, and his reply, that he had done it because he was afraid of falling into hell, brought the scornful retort, you're a self-centered little rascal, aren't you? <laughs> and it's not until 18 years later, so he had his first insight at 24, and he didn't attain his full irreversible enlightenment till he was 41. Um, and that's when he would really understand why Shoji pushed him so far after, into what's called post-satori practice. So you don't just give up. You don't think you've made it when you had your first insight, but you're pushed further and further into your insight. And uh, this is quite sweet. Years later, Hakuin asked one of his students the same question, why did you become a monk? And he answered, to work for the salvation of my fellow beings. And Hakuin laughed and said, that's a much better reason than mine. <laughs> so anyway, he kept on working at his practice and had more and more enlightenment experiences. Um, this is a very, I, I find this bit very, very tender. Um, one day he was out um, reflecting and he penetrated to a very deep and boundless freedom. And this was after he was, just, he was out on an arms round, he was sitting, gaze, standing, gazing into space, you know, really in his, doing his thing. And he got beaten senseless by this old woman who came out and started sort of beating him up. I don't exactly know why, probably because he was standing on her veranda or something. And he had um, this very deep insight, and he went back to his master. You've got to remember, this is a very harsh, demanding master. And the master could see something had happened. And he said very gently, speak the good news. And the master tenderly stroked his back. I find that very, very moving. So when the master could see that he'd really penetrated, he stroked his back and said, speak the good news, tell me about it, about his insight. So he left Shoju, and he was becoming more and more clear that his total enlightenment was incomplete. Um, and this is a very interesting time of his life. He came down with what's called Zen sickness, which is uh, what can happen to people when they practice in an um, imbalanced way. Remember, he's doing all his current practice, incredibly heady. So this is, again, a sort of warning to any of us that can get a bit heady, which I think is a, is a sort of danger for Westerners. We're not very in our bodies. So poor guy, you know, he thought he'd had his big insight, had his... Um, 
insights shattered, worked very hard, had more and more insights, and then he got ill. Um, this might be one of the reasons why I'm so kind of attracted to Haku, and I think he seems so human. You know, he has all the ups and downs that we all have. So he says at this time that he could see, I could see that the two aspects of my life, the active and the meditative, were totally out of balance. No matter what I was doing, I never felt free or completely at ease. I realised I would have to rekindle a fearless resolve and once again throw myself, life and limb, into the Dharma struggle. With my teeth clenched tightly and eyes focused straight ahead, I began devoting myself single-mindedly to my practice, forsaking food and sleep altogether. Before the month was out, my heart fire began to rise upwards against its natural course, parching, parching my lungs of their essential fluids. My feet and legs were always ice cold. They felt as though they were immersed in tubs of snow. There was a constant buzzing in my ears. I became abnormally weak and timid, shrinking and fearful. I felt totally drained, physically and mentally exhausted. My armpits were always wet with perspiration. My eyes watered constantly. I travelled far and wide, visiting wise Zen teachers, seeking out noted physicians, but none of the remedies they offered brought me any relief. Poor guy, you know, he's tried so hard and now he's come down with this illness. Um, and modern writers seem to think it was possibly tuberculosis, tuberculosis pleurisy, nervous collapse, or a combination of the three. You know, maybe it was a little bit like... Um, well, it sounds like a nervous collapse, doesn't it? He just pushed himself so hard his body had given out. So, of course, it prevented him from doing his Zen training. One master said, Attempting to cure Zen sickness only makes it worse. Find the quietest, most secluded spot you can, settle down there and do Zazen with the intention of withering away together with the mountain plants and trees. You mustn't spend the rest of your life running all over the country looking for someone to help you. It's a poor guy. I mean, that's pretty tough remedy, isn't it? Um, he did eventually find a place for solitary practice and intended to stay there, but then his father became ill and wanted him to go back to um, restore the, t the local temple. And what's interesting is he went back and he never, uh, he never had the chance to go back to the solitary life. And I find that very moving as well. He chose his father over his own quest to sort of be on solitary. And again, I, I see around me with sort of my generation of Western Buddhists, we've got these kind of issues coming up with ageing parents and so on and he went, he went back to look after his father and around that time he um, went to a hermit in the, mountain, in the mountains um, and it's not certain whether this is true or apocryphal but he found this person who, who gave him teachings to help him cure his sickness um, and that's all written about in a book called The Embossed Tea Kettle or The Yasankana and it's all the remedies which is why it's the most popular one of his books and it's been continually in print, and it is fantastic, actually. In a way, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good manual on how to restore balance in your meditation practice that I think applies to any of us. Um, so the meditations he learned were all about getting the vital en energy low in the body. And it's very interesting, again, in terms of Western Buddhists, it seems like there's now, been, there's now a generation of people have been practicing for 30 to 40 years in the West and there's never been that before and a number of people seem to be hitting the same wall of feeling I've not really got anywhere and it's because people have been too heady and so there's all this kind of interest at the moment in Western Buddhism about getting in the body there's a, an American magazine called Tricycle and there's quite a lot of articles out in the moment about um, how Westerners need to restore the balance and get much more back in the body 
So it's very, very interesting that Hakon went through a similar thing, you know, two, three hundred years ago. So one of the practices he does is horizontal zazen, which I'm very keen on, which is lying down meditation. Um, uh, breathing through the heels, that's interesting. Um, the headings in the Yasankana is sustaining life, remedies for sustaining life and achieving immortality, drawing the mind into the lower body, non-contemplation, cultivating the mind energy, the soft butter method, and the benefits of introspective meditation. So the soft butter method is fantastic. What you do, if you read about it in the book, you meditate, and you imagine you've got an egg of butter on your head, and while you meditate, that egg of butter is melting and going right down through every single cell in your body. So that's the meditation. That's the way you get the energy right down in your body. Fantastic, isn't it? I've tried it a few times. It's really good practice, actually. Um, Okay, I'll just skip this bit here. Um, So he completely cured himself of his illness, and through his experience, um, the big thing he came up with is integrating the life of activity and the life of calm. So that became one of Hakuin's lasting teachings, the importance of integrating the life of activity and the life of calm. So rather than just sitting all the time, you need to also take your meditation into your activities. And of course, that's very grounding, isn't it? Because your body's moving. He doesn't actually say that, but that will be the implication. Um, one of the things I really like about this part of Hakuin's life that I find very reassuring is that he didn't always get it lo- didn't always get it right. You know, he suffered for his excesses, and so did the Buddha. If you look at the Buddha's life, he didn't have an easy path to enlightenment. You know, he went off with the five ascetics and thought that he would gain enlightenment through starving himself, basically. And he just became ill. And he had to he had to realise that he had made a mistake, that he'd taken a wrong turning, and then get back, start taking milk, and then. Um, have a more measured approach and then gaining enlightenment. And I find that very, very reassuring for us, you know, that we're all going to take wrong paths at time. And I, th- I think what I used to do is think that great practitioners didn't make mistakes. It was only people like me that made mistakes. And realise, well, actually, we all make mistakes. And the true wisdom is being willing to recognise you've made a mistake and recognise that you, you need to change the way you practice if it gets out of balance. Okay, so he goes back to Shoinji, which is the um, temple that he first went to when he was a boy. It was a very wrecked place. It was an abandoned shell of the place. He needed to wear a rain hat in Wellington's when it rained, and he lived in tremendous poverty. At night, the stars shone through the roofs. The floors were sodden with rain and dew, and the halls had no doors or panels. Temple assets had passed into the hands of creditors, and the equipment for ceremonies and other temple furnishings had all been pawned. About the only assets worthy of notice were the moonlight and the sound of the wind. Isn't that beautiful? So there he is, just quietly getting on with it in this wreck of a place on his own. So for about ten years, he just stayed there quietly, meditating and studying unstintingly. He wasn't famous. No one really knew him. When the sun went down, he would climb inside a derelict old palanquin. I think a palanquin's like a sort of chariot thing isn't it and um, set himself up and one of the young boys studying at the temple would come wrap his body in a futon tie him tightly into this position with a rope and there he would remain like a painting of Bodhidharma until the boy came and untied him the following day (laughs) so that was you know it's amazing 10 years just quietly getting on with it with such zeal 
And this is when he gained enlightenment. This is very, very beautiful, when he was 41. He's been practicing all these years, really hard. The sound of a cricket chirring at the foundation stones of the temple reached his ears. At that instant, he crossed the threshold into great enlightenment. The accumulated doubts and uncertainties of 40 years suddenly ceased to exist. He found teardrops cascading down, down his face like strings of beans. They poured out like beans from a ruptured sack. His, biogra his biographer wrote, From that time forth the Master lived in a state of great emancipation. The enlightening activity of the Buddhas was now his, without any lack whatsoever, enabling him to speak with the same tongue and from the same lips as all the Buddhas before him. I find it very, very beautiful, this thing of tears sort of cascading down his face like beans from a ruptured sack or like strings of, of beads. And he wrote, he wrote a poem, his enlightenment verse, Happy indeed, I will not seek the hills of any distant country. That's great, isn't it? I mean, in a way that's saying I'm happy right here, right now. Happy indeed, I will not seek the hills of any distant country. So there he was, enlightened, 41, and he didn't die until he was 84, and he just worked unceasingly from that time on for the salvation of beings. Totally other-regarding practice. He worked and worked and worked to spread the Dharma. Um, so his post-satori practice became quite a distinguishing feature of his Zen, so pushing people on past their first insight, so they keep on pushing further and further on so they could gain full enlightenment. Um, remember that his illness was actually after he had had a, his first enlightenment experience as well, so he had to get through that whole illness period, so he would help his students through the ups and downs of post-satori practice. Um, and after he gained enlightenment, he continued to practice, but now the focus changed. His focus now was totally on teaching others, totally, totally oriented towards other. And he equated this with the bodhicitta, mind of enlightenment. He came to see that enlightenment for himself alone or to escape hell was empty. So he finally realized his, his original motivation was completely empty. And what was he, he, he was responsible for reinvigorating Zen. So remember, it was very, very stagnant. And this guy who had been so critical as a teenager then became a great reformer for, from when he's 40 till he's 80. He taught all types of people, monks, lay people, people from different sects. Basically, he would offer the Dharma to anyone that wanted it, which is very inspiring. And Padma Vajra, who I, I've mentioned a few times, who lives at Padma Loka, he's apparently taken a sort of um, vow, if you like, that whenever anyone asks him to come and give a talk, he will always say yes. He's just decided that's what he's going to do. Any invitation, he'll say yes to communicate the Dharma. Very, very inspiring. So he's credited with more or less single-handedly revitalizing Japanese Zen. And I think this is maybe one of the reasons why Sangharach just got him on our refuge tree. He was a reformer and he revitalized practice. And in a way, Sangharach is a reformer bringing Buddhism to the West and trying to pull out key teachings and um, keep things alive. He found, and he also founded a new Buddhist movement. Okay, quickly skipping things. Um, so it's very, very moving this. So... There he was, practicing quietly at this temple. He had no desire to be famous, but of course the word got out, slowly got out, and eventually many, many monks came to Shoinji, so the temple couldn't accommodate them all, and the entire area for three miles around became a training ground for followers. 
That's very moving, isn't it? That's the power of an individual who's just getting on with his practice and teaching wholeheartedly. He will just draw people to him. And he travelled very extensively. He utilised books, lectures, sermons, letters, poems, folk songs, calligraphy and painting to communicate his vision. He was constantly encouraging people and he insisted that awakening was possible for everyone if we concentrate our spirit to discover our true nature. And although his training was very strict, he also showed sympathy, humour and encouragement. You get the sense he just really, really wanted beings to be free. I find that very, very inspiring. You know, he, he had seen the truth and he saw how burdened we all are by our ignorance, by our kind of ego. And I think if you really see through that, you have no option than to really try and help other people be free. Um, I'll just finish with what was he like as a person. This is a nice little quote about him as a person. One of his students said, Our master moved like a bull and stared like a tiger. Apparently he was a large, imposing figure of a man in whom were combined great physical strength and a dominating character distinguished by extraordinary determination and uncompromising independence. But he wasn't all strictness and severity, however. In his biography, there's many anecdotes about his foibles. He was, for example, inordinately fond of sweets. <laughs> this weakness must have been well known in Zen circles. For his biographer Torre said that when he arrived at Shoinji for his first meeting with the master, he took as a gift a bag of sugared goodies he had picked up along the way. Hakon was also extremely fond of soba noodles, and when the temple cook began preparing Toro Rojiru, a dish made from pulverized mountain yam, we are told the mere sound of the pestle grinding the yam was enough to make the master's mouth water and his eyes narrow with anticipation. Also, like most Japanese priests, he enjoyed drinking sake. So the biography tells of an incident in his mid-twenties when he stopped off to have a few last cups of sake before entering a temple to begin a rigorous practice session. According to the Zen historian, Hakuin allowed no sake in the Shoenji during his first ten years as head priest. Later on, however, he drank moderately saying it was for medicinal purposes. <laughs> he also had a pipe habit, dating back to at least his mid-twenties. At one point, troubled by the notion that his smoking might violate the Buddhist precepts, he decided to swear off. Taking out his tobacco pouch and pipe, he threw them into a rice paddy and then, as if to sever all remaining ties to the articles, poked them down with his staff until they were deeply buried in the mud. Again, he resumed the habit later in life, this time saying it helped him to relax from the demands of his teaching duties. Torre, a priest who was known for his strict adherence to the precepts, writes how he would sometimes enter Hakuin's cham chambers and catch the master hastily, hastily concealing his still-smoking pipe behind his back. That's lovely, isn't it? So he's a very human guy. He gets in larger than life, li liked his little treats, and, you know, he had his little addictions like the rest of us. He died when he was 84. He died a peaceful death with full awareness that he would die at that time. Just before he died, a doctor came to see him, felt his pulses and said that everything feels all right. Hakuin says, Can someone be called a skilled physician when he can't even tell when a patient has only three days to live? Because <laughs> he knew he only had three days to live. 
and he painted a final calligraphy with his life statement. Meditation in the midst of activity is a billion times superior to meditation in stillness. Meditation in the midst of activity is a billion times superior to meditation in stillness. And he, on the, at dawn on the 11th day of the 12th month, he woke, month, he woke from a peaceful sleep lying, lying on his right side. He let out a single groan, ah, and died. And when he was cremated, a great many relics were found in his ashes. That's a sign of the master in Buddhism, that when, when their bodies are burnt, you, you find these relics. I don't know whether that's true or whether it's apocryphal. And they resemble precious blue gems. Precious blue gems. Amazing. You know, your ashes become precious blue gems. So just to very briefly summarise his legacies, he revitalised Zen and spoke out against quietism. And he, uncovered, he encouraged this very active and dynamic approach to practice, particularly Cohen study. He um, saw and taught the importance of keeping going when you've had insight practices, not to think you've, you've reached it when you have your first Satori experience. That's very, very important. So don't settle for small gains. And then there's the whole thing about his Zen sickness, what he learned from his Zen sickness about getting the vital energy lower in the body. And I think his Yas Kana is a real major um, contribution to meditation literature. There's still, if you read it now, it's, it's a fantastic manual on how to meditate in a skillful way in the body. And he says, I pledge that if I did free myself from the pit of falsehood into which I had fallen and went on to achieve genuine enlightenment, I would do everything in my power to assist others who might suffer from Zen sickness as I had. Now, whenever I see the signs of Zen sickness developing in younger students, I get the same feeling I would have if I saw a small infant toddling towards an open well. You know, obviously just this real heart response. Fourth important point about integrating the life of activity and the life of calm. Maintaining a deep flow of awareness all the time, not just in formal meditation practice. And that's something that we can really take into modern Western life, I think. And again, the importance of sharing his understanding after his enlightenment with everybody. This tireless sharing of the Dharma to anybody, whether they're Buddhist or not, he would just teach. He, would, he was totally, totally generous with his time and energy. Um, and he says, practice certainly doesn't mean sneaking off to some mountain and sitting like a block of wood on a rock or under a tree silently illuminating yourself. It's crazy, isn't it? It means totally immersing yourself in your practice at all times and in all your daily activities, standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. Hence, it is said that practice concentrated in activity is a hundred, a thousand, even a million times superior to practice done in a state of activity. And this is lovely. When the old masters heard the work bell, they were the first to arrive for work. In Zen, there's a very big thing on working. And, uh, you know, it's often said chopping wood, carrying water. That is Zen practice. You just chop wood, you just carry water. You're just cooking a dinner, you're just sitting, sitting here listening to a talk, you're just driving the car. That's your Zen practice. Um, and there's a, talk, there's a story about a, a, an old monk who was 90 who still insisted on working and his disciples had to hide his tools because he wouldn't give up working. And he used this beautiful image of a lotus and a, a lotus that blooms in the fire. I really love this. So the lotus is stillness that blooms in the fire of activity. And this is, this is something that Padmavadra says, which is very, very beautiful. Hakuin said that to meditate in stillness and avoid activity 
you will become so sensitive that the slightest activity will upset you. You just become precious, like a shellfish that has no water, like a monkey without its trees, like a lotus that withers near the fire. But he isn't saying don't meditate. He just shares, says that meditation must go on all the time, on the, on the cushion or off. You must always be engaged with the koan. Make everything in your life the koan. Make the mountains, rivers and the great earth your meditation platform and the universe your meditation cave. Make yourself like a lotus that blooms in the fire. Bring your practice into the life of activity. Don't sit with your gold in solitude, but share it with others in the world. Sit with your gold and you become a very poor man. Grow, fire, grow a fire lotus that can never be destroyed. Let us grow the fire lotus, or how can we ever dream of entering the whiteness of understanding the great matter? So that's something from Papabhadra's talk. And just a quote from the embossed tea kettle, this Yasankana. This is the last thing I'll say. For such people, there is nothing but great joy, enough to dissolve the sky and shatter the iron mountains. They are to be compared with the lotus which blossoms and becomes ever more beautiful and more deliciously scented as it gets nearer to the fire. And if you ask, how can this be? It is because the fire is itself the lotus, and the lotus is itself the fire.